This morning's reading is from Ephesians 4, um, verse 17 to 32. Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. And if you've got one of these Bibles, it is page 1175. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so to, as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are, were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Well, do um, be opening uh, your Bibles back to that page, 1,175. That'd be great just as I get my stuff together. Um, we've, we've prayed. And uh, if you're visiting us uh, this morning, it's lovely to have you with us. We're in the middle of a, a series uh, going through the uh, Ten Commandments. And as you've probably guessed from the children's talk, we're up to commandment number eight. Do not steal. And if you've been with us over the last uh, few weeks, you'll know perhaps what to expect. When we looked at the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, it became apparent that what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount is that we are all murderers because we all have hatred in our hearts for people sometimes. And that deserves hell, according to Jesus. And then last week, uh, we considered the seventh commandment. It became apparent from Jesus' instruction, again in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are all adulterers, because we all have lust in our hearts. We fail to recognize God's image in people, whether it's hatred or, or lust. We fail to treat people as God intends. And so again, according to Jesus, we need to get rid of this so that our bodies are not thrown into hell. If you doubt what I'm saying, and it sounds a bit extreme, do, do go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. And so it will come as no surprise 
that as we consider the next commandment, do not steal, we discover the perspective from the Bible that we are all thieves. We all steal. And we think, oh, this is just a bit negative, isn't it? But God is so holy, so good, and his standards so high, revealed to us in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that if we think that stealing is just taking pens from work or shoplifting, as Mark illustrated for us, or claiming expenses in a slightly exaggerated way or not declaring absolutely everything on our tax return, then we can say we've never stolen anything. I am no thief. But this sermon is to help us realize, as Jesus teaches us, that we are all thieves. We fall so far short of the glory of God. And if we're to have a relationship with God, if we're going to go through the judgment day, innocent, and be welcomed into the new creation, then we must trust in the only person who was no thief. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. A few things to say, just by way of recap. God rescued the Israelites and then gave them the Ten Commandments. He, he rescued them by his gracious promise, didn't he? Not by their, their adherence to the Ten Commandments. They were rescued purely by God's generosity and his faithfulness to his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to rescue them out of slavery. And then he gave them the Ten Commandments so they would know how to live in right relationship with him under the Mosaic Covenant. But they failed to obey the Ten Commandments. You look at the history of Israel. Even before they get into the land, Moses announces that they're going to be judged and sent into exile because they couldn't keep the Ten Commandments until the true Israelite came, the Son of God, Jesus who perfectly kept the law. And so as we've been looking at the Ten Commandments, we've been reminded that there's three ways that we can apply the law of God to ourselves. First, the law of God shows us how much we need Jesus. It shows us Christ. And then the law of God shows us what Jesus must have been like because he perfectly kept the law. He fulfilled the law. And it also shows us how we're to live in our society, both the community of the church and the community of whatever state we belong to. The law leads us to Christ, it's fulfilled in Christ, and it shows us how to live. Three points uh, that I hope will be helpful for us this morning. Uh, we'll be looking at, at Ephesians 4 just a moment, but this is more of a thematic sermon looking at this commandment. Three things. Do not steal, rather give to the needy. Secondly, do not steal, rather pay fair wages. And thirdly, do not steal, rather give glory to God in Christ. So firstly, do not steal, rather give to the needy. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. See, what is the opposite of stealing? Is this just something negative? We avoid stealing what belongs to other people, whether it's property or copyright or whatever it might be. No, the Christian belief of what it means not to steal is to give also to the needy. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful 
with their own hands. Paul's not denying that work with our hands is is any better than work with our intellects. Rather, he's reflecting sort of Greek culture, which denigrated work with your hands, the hard graft, manual labor, that was for slaves. But no, Paul said, no, work, manual work, doing stuff with your hands is dignified. That's the life the Christian should lead rather than stealing. But why work? Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands. Why? That they may have something to share with those in need. I don't know if that's how you'd have finished that sentence. Why do we go out to work? Why do you or I work? To put a roof over our heads, uh, to feed our family, to, to buy the things we want, to go on holiday, to get to retirement. These are all good things. They're not bad things, but it's not what Paul says. Paul says, work with your own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. That's why we work. That's why we go to the nine to five. That's why we go through the stress. It's not just for the pay packet to provide for ourselves and our family, although that is a good thing. A Christian understanding of why we don't steal but work is to give to those who are needy. And Paul is explaining that this is the Christian life that is part of the new creation. It's part of the world to come. So just turn back with me to uh, verse 22, and we'll just see this. We're not going to look at everything in this part of Ephesians. But he says in verse 22, You were taught with regard to your former way of life. So these are mainly Gentile Christians who've come to faith. With regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, stealing, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, understand what the, the alternative to stealing is, and to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. If we're a Christian here this morning, we've been given a new self, which is created or recreated to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. And what does that mean? Well, verse 25, therefore, speak truthfully, and then verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. This is part of the new life that Christians are called to. And so just to to think about this for a moment, is this why we work? Is this one of the motivations? There's lots of motivations in Scripture, aren't there, about why we work? But here's one, that we may have things, money to share with those in need. That's what in our minds when we go to work in the morning, when, I don't know, I know lots of us have had really busy weeks of late, is that one of the things that, I'm doing this job so I've got money to share with those in need. Such a good thing for me to be doing. And Jesus assumes that we will, as Christians, be giving to the needy. Um, Let's just flip back to Matthew chapter 6, back to the Sermon on the Mount, which we seem to keep coming back to. I think it's so seminal, isn't it, in in Jesus' application of the the Ten Commandments. So Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to pick it up from verse 2. 970 or 971. So Matthew 6. 
verse 2. So, when you give to the needy, Jesus doesn't think this is a question that needs to be debated. It's, a, it's when we give to the needy as Christians. Do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's, it's to be in secret. You're not even counting your money out in public so people can see how much you're giving. No, you don't even let your hands know what the other is doing. So your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you, just as he will with secret fasting and secret prayer. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, give to the needy, except for this group of people who are really deserving of their neediness. Don't bother with them. No. It's a general definition of need. What he does say is those we don't need to worry about giving to. In chapter 5, verse 46, he says, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get from your heavenly Father? Are not the tax collectors doing that? So to be Christian is to be working to give to those who are needy in secret who will never repay us. Why might God command this or teach this in this way, that giving to the needy is as fundamental and central in the Christian life as prayer, that giving to the needy is why we work? It's part of that new life, that new creation. Well, I guess as parents, uh, uh, many of us here, maybe we've observed this, uh, parents uh, are very keen, aren't they, to be fair with their children. Woe betide any parent who is unfair with their children. And the children will be very sensitive. to They'll pick up if there's some slight injustice. So why might it be that in some times we give one of our children double or triple or quadruple, you know, four ice creams or three ice creams? You know, why, why you know, we, we buy three ice creams, we, we, in our case, three children, give, give one of them three, three ice creams. Why? Well, the intention is obviously so that they're shared out. If one of our daughters was there in the corner eating all three ice creams, that wouldn't go down very well. The, the idea is that it's shared. Why does God give some people more than others? So that we give to the needy. Even in the provision of bread in the Old Testament, quoted in 2 Corinthians. It was for equality. Those of us who can work are given it as a way of sharing with the needy. Has God given some of us more money, more resources, because we're more valuable to him as his children, we are his favorites? No, he's given us more talents to earn more money so we can spend it on ourselves. No. He has given us more so that we can be more generous to the needy. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, as the Corinthian church in its wealth has been encouraged to give out of their wealth to help the Jerusalem church, he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 to 11. And he quotes the Old Testament. They, that's the righteous, have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. This is a righteousness that goes along with eternal salvation, that forever righteousness that we're heading to. 
and we can trust God. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way. Why? So that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. I think we can overreact to the dangerous teaching of the sort of health and wealth gospel. You know, have faith in God and God will make you rich. We can so overreact to that that we miss what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians where he's unashamedly encouraging the Corinthian church that God can give Christians, enrich Christians in every way to be generous which enlarges the harvest of our righteousness. And this is a righteousness that accompanies eternal salvation. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. The right, their righteousness endures forever. What does this mean as a church? Well, it's good that we have collections each week for the food bank, but this should be just the tip of the iceberg of our generosity to the needy, should it not? If we're to have that righteousness that endures forever, that goes into that new creation, we need to be giving to the needy in secret. This is what it means, according to the New Testament, not to steal. Do not steal. Rather, give to the needy. Secondly, do not steal. Rather, pay fair wages. Now, I'm, I'm conscious that this second point is open to misunderstanding, and you may already starting to sense this in what I'm saying. Is John getting a bit political? Has he got a particular political party in mind that I disagree with? No. No political party has complete overlap with Christian civic ethics, does it? But the Bible's teaching does have political implications that are not reflected by any political party. But for too long, I think, we have overreacted as evangelicals to the social gospel, which is still rife, whether it's a post-evangelical, the kingdom is extended by injustice being tackled. Jesus would disagree with that or a more liberal gospel which says Jesus only ever preached love for the poor. No, he didn't. He claimed to be the true Israelite, the Son of God. And we overreact rather than listening to what the Bible says in that the law of love is summed up by Jesus as love for God and love for neighbor as ourselves has implications for fair wages. Now, I'm not talking about trade unions here, or I'll mention them a little later on. There's two scriptural principles. Let, let's look at them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. I mean, there's many more, but let's just look at these. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Can somebody shout out the page number? I, sorry, go on. 1190. I know for some of us this might be slightly challenging because um, we're recovering as an evangelical constituency from the pietism of the past, which says that we don't get engage in politics. We just get on with winning souls and ignore politics. But I would suggest that that is not biblical. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. The one who is unwilling to work 
shall not eat. Paul is addressing a situation in the church in Thessalonica in which either because people thought Jesus was going to come back next Friday or because they were just simply lazy, they refused to work. And he's saying, look, warn such believers. They need to work. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. The principle is clear and logical. If a person does not work, they should not eat. So if a person does work, they should eat. We're agreed on that logical principle. This is a biblical principle. And yet there are many people in the world who work and do not eat. And many of them are Christians, whether it's the Dalit in India or some Christians struggling in sub-Saharan Africa, increasingly affected by drought, many linked to global warming, as well as the result of aggression from militant Islam. They work, but they do not eat. Fellow brothers and sisters in the world, that should concern us. Or James chapter 5. Let's just flip forward to James chapter 5. As I say, my aim is not to be political, uh, although there may need to be political solutions to these questions. And historically, Christians have often been at the forefront of these political uh, solutions, as we will see. But James chapter 5, verse 1, writing to churches throughout the diaspora, 1216, page 1216. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. James, like his brother Jesus, does not say wealth is wrong. He's not saying that. But like Jesus, it can master our hearts that we live for it rather than from God, rather than for God. And so James is warning rich Christians of the contradiction of being saved and not paying a fair wage because of their commitment to, to luxuries, to clothes, to gold and silver. He's warning them because they, in that day, were in spiritually a dangerous place because wealth had won their hearts. And Jesus was quite clear, wasn't he? You cannot serve good two masters. Either you love the one and hate the other, or you hate one and love the other. For these Christians, their wealth was more important than paying a fair wage. So he continues, look, verse 4, the wages you have failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvests have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. See, these were probably wealthy Christian landowners who had their fields harvested by peasants and failed to pay them properly. They got rich by exploiting those who worked for them. Now, just a couple of things that we've, we've got to clarify. Jesus is not against luxury, is he? We, we know that. We, we've looked at that. Jesus accepted a bottle of nard, of ointment, being broken and placed on his feet by a woman, which cost 20,000 pounds in modern day terms. That's a luxurious bottle. Of, I don't know how much you spend on perfume. 
But I would guess most of us don't spend £20,000. They do exist. Jesus described it as a beautiful thing. The act of devotion and generosity that she showed to him to prepare him for his death was a beautiful thing. It was focused on worship of him. But as we've seen, he's also clear that money can be an idol that prevents people from following him. And that's what the risk was for these rich Christians. Do not steal, rather pay fair wages. And this, I think, applies to all of us here globally, does it not? We're all wealthy in global terms. And we rightly celebrate the role that Christians like the Clapham sect and Wilberforce had on the abolition of slavery. We rightly celebrate Lord Shaftesbury and the passing of the poor laws in the 20th century, 19th century, sorry. The, the ways in which child labor became illegal in the Victorian era. But if we are truly their successors, how are we ensuring that we do not steal and ensure that the people who work to provide us with what we enjoy, many of the things we enjoy are luxurious, receive fair wages. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that trade unions are always pursuing the right course of action. Many of us have chosen, I know, in this room, not to strike in our sectors for the very reason that we're content with our pay, which John the Baptist encourages us to be. I'm more concerned for what the trade unions were set up for by Christians to ensure that those working down the mines or working the factories received a fair wage. In fact, I think they started in Essex with the, the matchmakers. That's not some dating thing, that was actual matches. Um, look into that. But it's estimated that there are about 130,000 slaves in the UK as of 2021. Worldwide, the numbers of people who are trapped, many of them Christians, in slavery is estimated to be 46 million. What would Wilberforce, what would Shaftesbury be doing today if they heard that? If we are their heirs, we should be doing what we can to support the abolition of modern slavery. How can we do that? Well, we can inform ourselves of what they produce by slavery and boycott those products. Just as in the 18th century, people who were abolitionists refused to have sugar in their tea, knowing where it had come from and what price had been paid to bring it to their table. Why are some shops so cheap? We need to check that it's not because of slavery. Because often, sadly, it is. Do we know which shops have policies which ensure that the, the trade that they engage in are ensuring a fair wage for a fair day's work? And it also, I think, it relates to very contemporary issues, does it not? Should money stolen in the past from the work of other people from which we still benefit be returned? Should there be restitution for slavery of the past? If stealing has taken place, repentance in a Christian understanding leads to restitution, does it not? We can't just say, oh, I nicked that stuff from you. Sorry about that, but I'll keep it, thank you very much. That's not repentance. Repentance. 
Now, I know this is opening up a whole can of worms, and I'm not saying that reparations should necessarily be paid, though I do think there should be some form of compensation which encourages and educates those whose lives are still blighted by what happened, maybe centuries, but maybe only decades ago. And we, if we are truly seeking to obey this command, do not steal, should be concerned for those from whom much has been stolen. Lives, labor, family. We can't just say, oh, it's in the past, let's just move on. And equally, it would be ironic, wouldn't it, if we are zealous for justice with all the sort of post-colonial ideology that is rife in our culture and yet not concerned for the modern slavery in this country or in the world. Do not steal, rather pay fair wages. I just ask ourselves the question, is buying the cheapest thing always the right thing to do? Or some will say, well, the free market enables the cheapest price. Well, there are two kinds of free market, aren't there? And this is where I am getting a little bit political, and I know that some will find this difficult. A free market is only a moral thing when its laws prevent exploitation and slavery. There are many free markets in the world that because of a lack of contract law or a lack of the rights of workers allow exploitation and slavery. So the, the free market answer is just not good enough. The free market in the 18th century was a free market which included slavery until it was outlawed. So let's inform one another of the shops that are ethical, the banks that are ethical, the companies that are ethical, our, our coffee, our bananas, our tea, have they been ethically produced? Fair trade, I think, is a good thing, although some Christians argue against it. Sustainability is a good thing. If we are to live the new life that Jesus has called us to, we need to obey the commandment, do not steal, rather pay fair wages. We don't want to benefit, do we, from somebody who's working so hard and is paid so little that they cannot eat. Or working so hard to provide us with luxuries that on the judgment day and we're standing there and all these luxuries are there, they will testify against us. Do not steal. Rather pay fair wages. And then finally, and far more briefly, because I wanted to try and think about how we apply this in our lives. Do not steal, rather glorify God in Christ. Uh, just before we go on to that point, just to say, uh, this is a book which I found very, very helpful on the subject of colonialism. Uh, we need to get clear on this, just as we need to be clear on LGBTQI plus rights and how they may undermine the freedoms of Christians. Uh, colonialism increasingly is talking about white privilege as something which is a thing, and that should apply to all of us. If we're not going to think it through, we need to think how to respond to the injustices of the past in a Christian way and not in a neo-Marxist, uh, Michel Foucault kind of way. If, if you want to ask me what that means, what on earth am I talking about? Uh, talk about that with me afterwards. In other words, groupthink will mean that we cannot answer the new wave of post-colonialism because we all are in the category of white privilege.
So that book is really helpful. I've put it on the, the church. But the final point, and this is where I want to close, do not steal, rather glorify God in Christ. You see, if stealing is taking that which rightfully belongs to another, we steal glory from God. You might have uh, been following the case of local boy all over the border in Suffolk, Ed Sheeran, uh, seeking to defend himself from the charges of breaking copyright by uh, those who represent uh, the, the sort of trust uh, of Marvin Gaye. And this was brought to court hearing in New York, and he was exonerated. He was exonerated from having stolen the intellectual property of another. But what about us and God? W will we be exonerated? See, God owns the copyright for everything. Your body, my body. Who owns it? They, they've been created by God for his glory. They've been purchased by Jesus Christ's death on the cross, if we're Christians here this morning, for God's glory. We steal glory from God every time we say to ourselves, my body, I'll do with it what I like. That is to steal glory from our maker, from our redeemer. Our talents, our gifts, our earning power, our intellect, all the brilliant minds, all the new ideas, AI, all that is good comes from God. And whilst there is rightly copyright law between people, when it comes to God, can we say, well, this is my idea, it's not yours, God. These are my talents, they're not yours, God. And we tend to think of ourselves and our talents as inherent to us rather than something we are given on loan. We steal glory from God. Will we be exonerated on that day when we face him? Whatever we do is to be for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31. So whether you eat, whatever we were eating earlier on, or drinking, whatever we were drinking earlier on, whatever you do, all the work, all our relaxing, all our holidays, all our quiet moments, do it all for the glory of God. That's the standard. Do you, do I, steal glory from God? I do all the time. Don't you? We're all thieves. We all fall short of the glory of God because we steal the glory that is rightfully and only God's as the source of all goodness and all love the one who has sent his own son to humble himself, the one who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and said, I've brought you glory, Father, on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. The one who never had a millisecond of thinking of himself, of his own glory, but the glory of his heavenly Father, the glory of God. It's only Jesus who is no thief. And wonderfully, as he was dying, could say to the thief who had admitted his guilt, who died by his side, the thief who was probably an armed robber of, or equivalent in the first century, said to Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom.
And Jesus answered, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. See, we're not going to make it to paradise because we're not thieves, but because we're forgiven thieves. We're not going to make it to this new creation because we never steal, but because Jesus never stole. We're only going to make it if we trust and live out that new life. That righteousness, that holiness that is ours in Christ Jesus. That new life that delights to give to the needy. That delights to pay fair wages. And longs to give more glory to God because there is coming a day when there will be no more needy. There will be no more wages and all will be the glory of God. Well, may that be true for each one of us. Amen. So, so let's um, turn now to the Lord as we think of him who hung on the cross so that we can be forgiven. We're going to sing a song. It's a new one. Um, and Sam's going to...